I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Friday Special, a podcast by Guitar Nerds. Now for 2020, the Friday Special series is running every week, and each week uh, we'll have a new guest from the world of guitars, amplification, effects, pedals, we'll have brands, producers, musicians, etc. I'm your host, Joe Branton, joined this week by my co-host, Matt Knight. Hello. Hello. And our special guest, Steve Mack from the Australian Pink Floyd. Hello, Steve, and welcome to the show. G'day there. Thank you. Ah. It's good to be here. <laughs> ah, yes. Wonderful. A proper, a proper yes. Australian <laughs> welcome. Thank you very much, Steve. Now, um, Steve is a, is a founding member of um, the Australian Pink Floyd show. Um, we're the most, the most successful and largest Pink Floyd tribute band. They've headlined you know, festivals, toured the world relentlessly since you know, they started in 1988. You know, reimagining and recreating large-scale Floyd-esque stadium shows and performances, and you know, taking Dave Gilmore's role in the band. Steve has recreated and reimagined a Gilmore-style rig with incredible detail. He's an, an absolute <laughs> messiah of uh, real-life guitar nerds. So Steve is one of very few men that I've met who can actually rival Matt Knight's level of pedal geekery. Yeah, and I think um, <laughs> I think it's 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 fair to say, and I've been talking to Steve for a couple of years now, that this is probably more of a self-indulgent episode for myself, um, <laughs> and probably more of a uh, a learning experience for you, Joe. Yes. Um, and obviously, the reason I wanted to reach out to you, Steve, and get you on here is. Um, We've obviously been talking about some boss stuff, but um, you sent me some pictures of your studio rig and uh, I was like, we, we kind of have to talk about it um, because it, it is one of the most glorious things that I've ever seen. And we'll, we'll certainly post some pictures in the Facebook group as well. Um, but for me, you know, having seen you guys play four times now, I think, uh, at, you know, and every time for my, my family, my dad got me into Pink Floyd, I... I guess half the people are probably going, oh, I love hearing all these Pink Floyd tunes. And then there's the small group of us all stroking our beards going, I wonder how he got that Gilmore sound. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I guess maybe we should start by asking you, I mean, just give us a rundown of, you know, how it started and, you know, why why Pink Floyd and... I mean, it must have been... Sorry, Jacob. Sorry, I was going to say, because it's been, you know, 1988 was the start of this. Of course, you were called Think Floyd um, at the time, uh, back in Adelaide in Australia. 
Um, but that you know, this is quite a journey from 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 that to now being you know part of one of the most successful tribute bands in the world. It has been um, an incredible journey. Um, we started off in obviously clearly in 1988 in Adelaide. Um, there was a guy there uh, who still lives there called Lee Smith, who's a, a, a lovely guy, a wonderful friend of mine. Um, and he was just the biggest Pink Floyd fan you could ever meet, really, uh, <laughs> and a great guitarist too. Um, he put some ads in the local music shops, and uh, me and Jason Sawford, the keyboard player, uh, we uh, responded to those and went down on a Saturday morning, met at a schoolyard, um, and they had a rehearsal room there, Uh and we just hit it off straight away. And the, the whole idea was to do original music, but it was also to play Pink Floyd music um, just for fun, really. It was just a few mates, a few beers, got on a get the Barbie going on a weekend, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And, and we, we did it and it, and it kind of just fell together really quickly and easily. It was, it was bizarre. Uh, we'd, we'd been in other bands cover bands before but this just had something about it um and we there was one of the brother-in-laws of one of the guys it was his birthday so we played for his birthday and everyone that was there there there's about 30 people there were just going crazy um and that encouraged me to go to a pub and we got a gig at our first pub a place called the alma hotel um and then that just went incredibly well and before we knew it um i spoke to a guy called brian gleason from the adelaide rock exchange who was an agent and he got us all these works all these gigs in different uh types of venues and then an australian tour and bigger shows and it, off it off it went but I, off I, it went i guess um <laughs> this is maybe not necessarily just um or maybe you can give a bit of insight in, into this in general. But for me, I've always thought that being in a band in Australia must be the most difficult thing to try and start touring because Australia is so massive. And it must it must have been quite a tricky thing at first to go, like, you know, at least in England, you can drive from one end to the other and, and hit about six or seven cities on the way. But it's yeah. not the... Is it the same thing over there? Well, it's Australia's the same size as Central America, yeah. um, so it's massive, absolutely enormous. Um, so we did have to do a lot of driving, and financially, it was just for fun. We all we all put money into it. It cost us money to do it. Um, we all had jobs, um, and then we'd book holidays and we'd go on these week or two week tours. Um, and that's all just gigging on the weekends. That's how we did it. But we didn't make a, a, a penny out of it in Australia. It was purely just for the love of it. And uh, it was quite expensive <laughs> to do yeah. it. So <laughs> we did love it an awful lot, you know. How um, how did you go about... Th- this might be sort of jumping the gun a bit because I know we want to talk about all, all the things that you did and how, how you got from A to B. But um, how did you go about replicating those sort of Gilmore sounds in those early days when, you know, you're still sort of working another job and, 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 and how accurate do you think you managed to come with much smaller rigs, I guess? Like how did you make a Gilmore pub rig, I guess? 
it was pretty difficult because this is before eBay and the internet. Um, and in Adelaide, you didn't really get that much information as far as what David Gilmore used. It was purely from looking at photographs in books or album covers or bootleg covers. So, um, and trying to get a lot of that equipment, you just couldn't get it in Australia. Um, so you just had to make do with whatever pedals you could tweak and try and replicate that sound. And fortunately, Boss came to the rescue in the <laughs> early days. And I'm not just saying that because Matt's here, but um, it really was the, the, you know, the saving grace. We didn't have any boutique pedals. We didn't have really electro harmonics pedals. So it was Boss and Ibanez, really, back in those days. Um, was all we really had. Or sounds in amps, you know, and then multi-effects came kind of later on from that, but it was just the odd stomp pedals. I remember building, um, I worked for a company called Telecom Australia and I used a whole load of rack telephone equipment, test equipment, and I built my, I took my, the innards out of all my boss pedals and fit it inside these racks <laughs> and built like a Bradshaw slash Cornish version of a multi-effects unit. Um, wow. Yeah, if, most if, people can remember their first pedal board, which is generally a bit of wood on the floor. <laughs> They're sort yeah. of taking it to the next <laughs> level. But yeah, so I did that and I remember my boss coming into the workshop and telling me off because I'd in I, my lunch break ended up being three hours because I'd be building it um, and getting carried away. But uh, in the end, they well, my bosses were very big fans of the band and wished us all the best. But um, yeah, it, there was a lot of homemade stuff. We just had to uh, improvise. And, and of course, then you just sit there and listen to the records and just tweak for, for days, always trying to improve it get it better yeah i guess um what's bizarre and it's something that we definitely you know we take for granted now but you know unless yeah unless you read a magazine and a magazine had specifically gone and sought out exactly what someone was using it wasn't exactly like there's the books the resources you can get now i mean obviously gilmoreish is a fantastic resource for for everything yeah. david gilmore but i mean then it was just like and I'm sure half of those pedals, especially the stuff he used in the 60s, probably didn't even ex even exist really in that much capacity 20 years on. They've probably all been out outdated by that point. I mean, very much so. When we first came to England, um, I think it was 94, I actually went down and visited Pete Cornish's um, workshop and he started... Uh, I spent a the day there, uh, got a hotel and went back the following day. Uh, he was brilliant, him and Linda, really, really, really uh, informative. And he was showing me all the different effects and telling me how the different circuits worked and what was going on. Um, and he told me about the, um, I don't know if you know, the song called Echoes. And there's like a, a whale song in the middle. Some people call it like a seagull sound. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was an embryo as well, but that's just um, a wire pedal wired in reverse. But yes, I didn't. I didn't know that, and 
that you couldn't find anything. There was there's never anything in a magazine or a book or anywhere that told people how he got that sound. And it wasn't till years after um, I came to England that I discovered what it what it was. You know, where is the, today a 15 year old kid or 10 year old kid can get online and bang, they've got everything they need. And if their dad's well off. <laughs> yeah. they can get on eBay and they can buy it and pretty much have it. Yeah. I mean, so um, <laughs> just just quickly, just on that point then, um, firstly, Embryo is probably one of my favourite like unreleased Pink Floyd songs because it never made it. I don't think it actually made it to an album, um, but it was on a couple of their recent box sets. But how did you go about doing that before you knew what was in, in those bits in, in the songs? I just used like a slide, right? Like a okay, slide and just played it. You know, physically played it. Yeah, wow. With a lot of delay and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's just mad. Like you say, now you just go, oh yeah, it's just a wall pedal in in plugged in reverse. I mean, it's amazing that people even you know, obviously, thankfully, guys like Pete Cornish who built the rigs were just like, yeah, it was just you know, it was just that. And I mean, obviously, an original mistake in the studio, but. Sometimes that, that sort of knowledge just gets lost. So in 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 ways, I think it's great that you know tribute acts like yourself are still like honing in on those sounds, bringing that sort of stuff to people's attention as well. Um, I think so, they're just great sounds as well. They're, there's Pink Floyd and David Gilmore. They they all created their own universe. Yeah, but you could, they were instantly recognisable that it was them because of the the Hammond sound the bass guitar sound, all the guitar sounds, the vocal effects, the drum sound, they just had their own uniqueness. And you don't seem to get as much of that these days. I might be wrong, perhaps I'm too old to, to hear it <laughs> in the younger music, but um, I don't know. It's, it's just, it, well, it's, it's very hard to recreate those old sounds, I find, compared to the newer sounds. Sure, no, I, I, I completely agree. Very yeah. difficult to replicate them, like doubly so when you don't have you know the the resources of the internet as as you didn't at the time when you started. Yeah, yeah, and I think actually as well now there's just there's almost too much choice. I mean, there's fifty tone benders, you know, there's yeah. hundreds of different big muff clones, um, you know, loads of people trying to make pedals that recreate that sound, and you can really fall down that sort of that sort of rabbit hole oh yeah <laughs> um but I, I was saying to joe um before you um you joined us steve that to me david gilmore always stuck out and i think still does as one of the guitar players of that generation but even now that was very gear heavy yes. um you know a lot of other players i mean you think of like jeff beck or you think of jimmy page those guys always, you know, it's, oh, it's Les Paul and a Marshall or it's, you know, it's a Strat and a Wild Pedal or, or whatever. Of yeah. the sort of classic, like those like top 10, you know, guitar players, the people that always make that list, he's probably the only one with like a sizable pedal board, you know, the only one who's really effects driven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's people like The Edge who has a phenomenally large rig, um, but, but again... Guitar-wise, what he actually plays is quite simple, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Very simplistic. It's all about delays and stuff. But it's very effective and it sounds instantly like him. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, when he does it. But the thing is with David Gilmore, when they first started out, it, it kind of was just a fuzz face and a 
at a hot high watt. <laughs> yeah. And a strat, yeah. you know. So it, it did start off quite minimalistic and then it just kind of, as the success came, yeah. it just grew, didn't it? It just. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I guess that kind of then, you know, if we um, kind of say, you know, you've been in the band a couple of years, you know, you've got more gigs, you're starting to do some bigger shows. Like, where, where, where did you kind of start with the the sort of rig journey when it became more serious or or when you went right this is my full-time job like what was your leaping off point <laughs> it um it's a long story but to cut it short i had to come to england for a funeral um and while i was here i uh went to london and tried to speak to harvey goldsmith to try and get some interest um, he told me to, to bugger off pretty much. <laughs> and so I phoned uh, Glenn Povey from Brain Damage magazine and I met up with him and coincidentally he was putting on a, a big Pink Floyd fan convention show at Wembley the following year and he was looking for a band. So uh, we just happened to cross paths at the right time and he booked us and then off we came. So... I went back to Australia, told the lads, and we were like, right, okay, we've really got to up our game now. (laughs) So that's kind of when we started to build stuff. And I had this idea of building everything in its own boxes. So all of the guitar amps and the Hammond organ, uh, the Leslie speaker, sorry, they were all encased in their own flight case with microphones on them to make them soundproof. Um, and we travelled with them, but it did give you that constant sound because it was isolated. It was always the same. And we rented a house and nine of us would go in this house, including our crew, and we'd just rehearse eight days, uh, sorry, eight hours a day, about six days a week, and we just honed it then and we worked on all the sounds all the arrangements, um, the set, just everything. And um, then we packed all that up, like this whole studio, and we flew it out to England to come and do these this Wembley convention show. Uh, and we, we turned up at Heathrow. They wouldn't let me in because I didn't understand about visas. Um, so after a lot of, a lot of arguments, um, my uncle who was living in England had to vouch for me, um, and promise that if I couldn't afford to pay my way, he'd, he'd, uh, sponsor me. Um, so that was one thing we got through and then we went to pick up all of our equipment and they wouldn't give it to us cause we didn't have a carne. Um, and they were just like, no, sorry, you can't, you're not allowed to bring it in the country. And I'll never forget, there was a lovely Indian chap who was ever so um, helpful. He loved uh, Pink Floyd. We told him what we were doing. He gave us all these forms and said, take these away, change all these figures, write this on it, come back, and we'll be able to sign it off and release your equipment. So it it was quite an adventure. (laughs) And we didn't have a clue what we were doing. We were just these country bunking <laughs> wet behind the ear uh, Adelaide Australian lads and we just uh, every, every step of the way it was you know a struggle and adventure but it 
I guess we were just too determined to stop, you know, or, yeah. or too silly, too stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it paid off in the end. Um, and, and we'll definitely come to some of the, the bigger gigs, you know, um, a bit later on. So what was your, what was the kind of rig at that, at that point? Can you remember what you were sort of using? Yeah, I had um, two Fender Twin reverbs, silver face jobs. Um, Lee had those as well. So they were built into one box back to back. Um, Lee had the same. Um, pedals wise, compression, I was using Ibanez compression. I didn't have any boss stuff. Uh, Lee had boss compressors. Uh, I was using the Ibanez. And then I had an overdrive pedal, boss OD1, PH1. Um, I think it was a CH. Not a CE2, it was like a super chorus. I mean, oh, yeah, going the CH1. 31, 30, well, 27 years now. Um, <laughs> yeah, delays. We had it, we both used this Yamaha R100, I think it was called, um, which was like a digital delay reverb. Um, we had both had a mixing desk, everything went into that. We blended DI. Uh, guitar signals with the microphones in the cabinets. Um, yeah, it was just a, a, some EQ. Remember, we had these Stereo Elisis 31-band graphic EQs that we used just to kind of tailor the sound to make the DI sound more ampish, basically a very, you know, sort of poor man's amp sim yeah. uh, <laughs> back in those days. Um, and that was kind of it for a couple of years and then I discovered an art SGX 2000 yes was that a rack unit it was a rack unit with a valve it's got a valve and like a valve preamp and that that was a game changer because not only did it have all the sounds and programmable for it for because obviously you use that many sounds to recreate uh, a Pink Floyd set you know of and of the three hours of music there's a lot of different sounds in there so um the fact that you could program them all in as we everyone just takes it for granted now but this was quite groundbreaking at the time um but it, the good thing about it was it it became the heart of the system because it had so many ins and outs and loops um and effect returns and different outputs different types of outputs for to send to the amps and to send to DIs. Um, so it had a lot of versatility and it kind of worked well with a mixing desk to give you more of a portable studio again, which has always been the approach we've taken to try mm. and get take a, take a studio on the road that's roadworthy um, to try and get as the, the most versatility you can um, out of your equipment on stage. Yeah. And then um, I guess, yeah, maybe a lot of boutique stuff or what we would we would class as boutique maybe really hadn't entered the um, entered no. the, the the sort of fray yet. So it's you know a lot of that earlier rack stuff, that nineties rack stuff, was really really groundbreaking. Yeah, um, and consistent. You know, if you had one, if, if it went faulty. You'd bought another one, you stick it in, and it sounded the same. Uh, whereas, as you know, with pedals, uh, the older they get, 
especially some of the rare ones, they've all been worked on and repaired. They all sound different, and you can you can buy ten off of eBay, and not one of them sounds yeah how you want it or the same. You know, yeah. so uh, just because someone says, "Oh, David Gilmore used this pedal," doesn't mean that if you buy it, it's going to sound anything like his. You know, so is that um, is that something that you've taken? kind of across the board approaching the sort of tones that that you want to i I appreciate at the moment we're still talking about the early days but is that something you still find now that it's not so much about replicating everything like for like it's more of a uh it's more of a a, i guess a tonal thing rather than an equipment thing and you're finding the gear that works for you to create that sound yes uh to some degree there's obviously some equipment that you have to buy that particular unit and some of that equipment like the Cornish stuff it does all sound the same you know it's not you're not going to get um two p1s that sound very different you know they're 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 very all identical because he's so precise and accurate and true to to the design um but as far as um a lot of stuff there are equipment out there well there is equipment and pedals out there that do sound like how you you want it more so than what if you buy a second hand original of that pedal there's pedals out there that kind of do a better job of sounding like how david gilmore sounded on the record back in the day right if that makes sense yeah because i i guess your approach and this is something that um you know i always feel you know especially having seen you guys is you know, you you think about the early, or you listen to the early Pink Floyd um, live performances, and you can listen to them on box sets and stuff. And obviously, there was a big element of improvisation. Um, and obviously, when they moved into things like Dark Side of the Moon, obviously they were doing the record in full, um, but it was still very much, you know, they were doing their own thing. And I guess what you're trying to do is actually recreate the sound on the record. Yes. Is that is that sort of fair to say that? Absolutely. Yeah, that's always been our mandate, really. Um, whereas Pink Floyd, as you, you probably well know, um, they would take the album on the road and tour it for two years before they recorded it. So every performance could have been different and using different equipment to experiment with. And then when they were really happy with it, they went and recorded it. Yeah. Um, where it doesn't really work like that anymore. People record the albums and then they'll go and tour with it. Um, so obviously everyone would just bootleg it anyway before yeah, they record yeah. it. <laughs> so um, the next question I, I kind of had was, um, so obviously, you know, 88, um, for those who aren't obviously massive Pink Floyd fans, but maybe know a bit about them, obviously 88 was a year after Momentary Latch for Reason, I think. Um, yep. So then they didn't have another album until The Division Bell, right? Which was 94? Yes. 90. It was 94? I think it was 94 or 95. Yeah. Um, I didn't realise it was that late. So I guess you were obviously sort of fairly well established at that point, And then all of a sudden they come along with a new record. Like uh, two questions. One, how did you sort of keep up, and how how long did you have to listen to the record for to work out all the all the tunes <laughs> on it? Well, quite a lot, really. Well, obviously, study and you know, sort of analysing it, stripping it down, and then working on those sounds. Um, but the the fortunate thing 
for us was that when we finally came to England and left our lives in Australia, this became a, a full-time job 24-7. And, you know, we didn't have that many gigs, so we had a lot of time to put that work in. Whereas if, you know, your, your average guitarist who's got a job and was working for a living and they're, they're doing everything in their spare time, um, where we were kind of fortunate enough to be in that position where that is your full-time job. Um, so you, you can knock it together reasonably quickly. Plus, we'd, we had several years of experience of doing it. Mm. So we had a bit of a you know head start of an idea as where to start with, with those tracks. Yeah, because I think um, there's a really famous David Gilmore picture that um, I'm sure many people will know, which is, I think it was from the Division Bell Tour, which is that crazy rack unit that he had behind him off stage. I think it was either Moment Relapse Reason or or, um, Division Bell, which is just like pedals on top, then, you know, two... 21U rack units. Did you just look at that and go, oh, at least I can get a good picture of uh, <laughs> what, what I need to aim for? It was, in fact, um, Pete Cornish actually sent me those photographs, which was really kind of him. Um, and, of course, the first thing you do is get your pedals out and put the knob settings to the <laughs> same as what David Gilmore's used. But it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work because... Um, buffers and all that come into play and they really change how pedals behave and sound um and obviously pete cornish um has buffers before and after every single pedal so you can't just get all those pedals plug them in and expect them to sound yeah it's just not going to happen um that must have been a, a disappointing thing in some way to kind of go oh, i've got those and i'll set the sounds exactly the same it's like uh, it doesn't sound anything because I guess that's for me that's and, and that's the great thing about seeing you guys live and, and especially you who you know you've got to play like it's it's not just sounding like him you've got to have the same you know feel and um you're not just trying to emulate his sound you're trying to emulate his playing style I definitely think the playing style is number one that's the most important thing because if you've if you can play it with the right feel, your sound actually, it, it, it can be a bit more forgiving with it mm. because it's so much of it is in the fingers and in the, in the mind, you know, and how you, how you approach it, how you, the, the, the feel, mm. the emotion and stuff, the attack. Um, so yeah, the, the, the sound is very, very important, but it's certainly not as important as, as you just said, the feel that's, that's the key to it. Yeah. And quite often, if you play it with the right feel, with a sound that isn't particularly that close, it still sounds very close to it. Um, where if yeah. you if you were to get the exact sound, but you don't play it right, it's not going to sound anything like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and for me, actually, that it kind of leads on to a one thing we haven't really talked about is. Um, guitars so for a lot of people uh, and obviously fairly recently when it was auctioned off the black strat is the most iconic um of david gilmore's instruments but there was a big period where it wasn't used especially in in the um in the late 80s and going into the 90s i always remember obviously playing a red strat with the emgs uh, the emgs so you know where did 
what was your jumping off point for that? What could Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Todd, do you kind of go, well, I've got to have... I mean, I'm assuming it had to be a strap, but it was like, where, you know, where do you move from there? It was eventually, I started off with an Ibanez guitar originally. Um, the first guitar I ever bought was a Les Paul copy. And the reason I bought that was because the only photograph I'd seen of David Gilmore was of him playing a Les Paul. <laughs> right. Um, so just, again, pure ignorance, because um, <laughs> where we lived, you, you just didn't get any information about Pink Floyd and all of their album covers that I had, there were no photographs on them. You know, it was all imagery and they were very mysterious. So they didn't let anything on. But um, I finally got a Strat copy. It was a by a Profile, it was called, brand called Profile. It was a Japanese one. <clears throat> I've still got it. Uh, I've kitted that out with some EMG pickups in and now the, the David Gilmore system which is really versatile. I've got to say, it's a, it is a great setup. I can really see why he used it. It wasn't just about noise, um, you know, sort of uh, isolation to, uh, to, to get rid of the interference and stuff because they're so quiet. But um, it's just the versatility you get with it is incredible. Um, but for that particular era in Pink Floyd, obviously it works, but if you want to sound like the albums from prior to that then you've got to go back to single coils um we also use stack pickups uh, some seymour duncan stacks um and we usually have a second guitar which if we have a really noisy stage with interference and stuff then we pull that one out you do lose a bit of that tone a bit of that top end harmonics but it means that you can still play without the guitar just being out of control you know due to mm. noise and stuff and um your main guitar now which is a is a strat's actually been played by david david gilmore right that's true that's <laughs> true it is his birthday he came up uh got on stage and i i knelt down before him and raised it up like 
um, passing the sword Excalibur to King Arthur. And um, he, t- he took it, um, looked down at my pedal board and said, so how do you fly this thing? <laughs> I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> um, I guess that's um, we should um, we should probably talk about just a couple of those those gigs because I mean uh, just reading obviously the biography on the website you've played the Royal Albert Hall, uh, Wembley, um, but for me and the one I I, I sort of mentioned to you, um, you know, last time I saw you was the fact that you played David Gilmore's fiftieth birthday party. <laughs> Yeah, that was incredible um, and a real honour, of course. Uh, it kind of came out the bluish, but it was also on the back of um, an invitation to play at Earl's Court for at the end of tour party for Pink Floyd as well. Um, but the, the David Gilmore's birthday, there was 500 uh, celebrity guests and probably the most terrifying gig of, of our lives. <laughs> it was uh, pretty scary, but they were all lovely. They were great, and David was really nice, re- really down to earth. Uh, and, it and it was because great. he'd always wanted to see Pink Floyd perform, right? Yeah, apparently so. That was one of the things he's regrets. That's amazing. <laughs> I, yeah, I, th- I think that's incredible. Um, and I, I guess... It, Maybe just um, moving forward, let's just talk about obviously where you are now. So obviously you've been touring for, you know, many years and many years since Pink Floyd haven't been performing, which has obviously been a great thing that you're out there because people like myself who are unfortunately never going to be able to see the band play, um, you know, you guys are, are out there doing it. So I guess we should talk about your guitar rig now and uh-huh. certainly your home studio rig, which... Um, Obviously, we're we're on a podcast, so I'll I'll try and just give listeners a bit of a roundup. With um, <laughs> <laughs> there's two ES8s, uh, five Morningstar loop switches, controlled by a separate MIDI foot controller. Um, there's an SY1000 on there. Um, we've got four, maybe five Pete Cornish pedals, some Origin pedals, Thorpey pedals, uh, Strymon two different eq pedals um yeah it's yeah. um it is a rig that many many could um could dream of and i guess you know one <laughs> how did you find the time to plug it all in um because there's some serious cabling going on here but just is this is your the rig you have at home in for the studio is that the same rig you take out on tour it isn't. It's similar in some ways, but different in, in other ways to make it more easier in the studio to get more sounds than just Pink Floyd sounds. Because mm-hmm. so, obviously I'm venturing into my own music um, and after doing this for 31 years, I just thought it's about time I started recording it again. Um, and the rig that you've seen... I've been collecting those pedals for about 10 years for it. And this year, because of the horrid um, COVID-19, it's kind of presented itself with um, a lot more time for me to do this. So I thought, well, I have to do this now. I've really got to build it. (laughs) Um, So I just, as I get older, um, 
you start to think about your back and stuff. And I thought, well, rather than have it on the floor, I'm going to have it so it's waist high um, and try and just make it so it's very easy to access and tweak and, and fiddle while you're actually playing to work on sounds. Whereas um, it's the opposite to the live rigs, which are more set and forget. You you work on your sound, it, you you got your hands in the rack and you're doing whatever you're doing um, and you store everything and save it and then you just recall that sound on stage during the gig. But there's not much um, knob tweaking or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> on on stage, it's all you know pre-programmed and you're just accessing it via a foot pedal. I, I was going to say, as a, as a side question, I mean, um, how many presets do you have going? I, and I have a hundred um, presets purely because that's the maximum number that my live rigs um, can hold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, what happens if we if we do um, new songs that we haven't played before, and I've got to delete sounds? So I've got to sort of scratch my head and think, right, what song are we not likely to play for a long time? And I'll delete them and then overwrite them with the new sounds for whatever songs we're doing. But, yeah, songs like Echoes, there's 10 sounds in that one. So that's 10% of your sounds gone just for one song. Um, Shine On, I use six sounds in that. Dogs and Sheep, there's several in those each. So you soon use up your your memory space yeah it's, it's funny i've never really uh, i've you know so often you know we, we kind of mess around at home or or you know joe obviously you're out playing a lot but you know maybe using an ms3 and a couple of pedals you're sort of like oh, i've got you know my core six sounds but of course if you're trying to sound like a record and then you're trying to sound like 10 records yeah you've got to be so much more specific you can't yeah. just sort of you know uh, yeah this drive sounds fine you know, <laughs> it's like 40 or 50 years worth of sounds, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the really odd thing is as well with David Gilmore's sounds is that when you you sculpt them and you get them so they sit in the song and they kind of work the way they do on the albums, when you actually separate them from the song and play them by themselves, they're, they're pretty bad sounds sometimes. I know it sounds, they're, they're gorgeous and perfect in the song but you can't really use them much in other music right. is what i've found they're so perfectly tailored for that song they don't right. really work in if you if you were to play i don't know sweet home alabama or yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> stairway to heaven or something and just try to rip up a solo sound out of my rig you'd struggle to find one that really worked for it because they're they're so specific for that yeah. Pink Floyd moment. That, that yeah, I mean that that is kind of a, I think uh, something across the board with Dave Gilmore's tones. They are every uh, yeah, every single one, every single tone seems to be for a very specific purpose. There's no kind of uh, yeah yeah. There's no you can't get away with a general lead tone and a general drive tone for for what you do. That's uh, got to be very difficult. It's also they were as musicians especially Rick and David, they were so sympathetic to the song and to each other when it comes to like frequency real estate. 
So they, 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 they never crowded a particular frequency range where they were wrestling with each other. They always left space. They were a lot of the perfect gentlemen when it comes to leaving room for every part of that song to be heard and to have its own place. Um, and sometimes if you're sculpting those guitar sounds, when you put it in another song, it, it clashes with other instruments. So that's why they're probably so specific as well, because there's so much EQ sculpting as well that goes on. Yeah, yeah, of course. So how, how does it work in rehearsal then? If you're, if you're sort of midway through a 20-minute song <laughs> and you're like, oh, these sounds aren't, aren't quite right. I mean, is it a case of just like... Because like you say, they're so specifically sculpted, you know, to sit in that mix and, you know, complement the rest of the band like just like you say dialing in at home must be a very different experience than taking it into a band a room full of nine other people it, it is yeah we um we obviously spend a lot of time away from rehearsals on our own working on our own parts and we would play along to the records um the albums and uh, get it so it works with that and then we'd come together and we record ourselves and we generally, we record ourselves all, all throughout the whole day and then we'll listen to it and our individually our, our parts that evening and get in there early the next day and do a few tweaks. And it's always a, an ongoing process. You know, you, you're always just working and then we'll have pre-production. We record that. I'll listen to it. Um, then we'll make tweaks, speak to the front of house people. We'll make tweaks. And to this day... Um, whenever we tour we record every single show and after the gigs sad as it may be <laughs> I listen to every show in my in my bunk or my bed on the tour bus or whatever and I'll make a whole lot of notes and we'll tweak and adjust things and do it again and again and again and it, it's just a quest to improve upon it and so as the year goes by and we do about 100 shows a year, it's getting tweaked and improved upon and honed. And you just, you, we're never happy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I guess you, um, yeah. it's the ultimate tone chase in in some ways, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, as we've said, it's not about their, necessarily the live sound. It's about the sound of the record. It's about um, bringing that feeling to people, you know, um, you know, the first time they heard Dark Side of the Moon or the wall or anything like that it's you know this the sound of the record they heard not necessarily the sound of it live um so i, I, I think it must it must be yeah it, almost like someone with uh you know red light syndrome can never can never kind of finalize a recording always wants another take i guess you must always feel like oh, i could always change that just a little bit it does although um the one of the real luxuries i guess of being in a tribute band is that um you have the blueprint the album is the blueprint it's like the bible that's the decider as to what's right and what's wrong it doesn't come down to personal opinions and taste so um it it does avoid a, having a lot of arguments or anything between us because um if we're not sure about anything, we just pull the album out and listen to it and go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. That, that's got too much 1.6K in it. 
you know, or or it's too dry, it's too wet, or whatever. You know, it's too, or it's too loud in the mix, or it's too quiet. Yeah. And you know, so we've got that um, sort of argument resolution system there. You just go back to the original, the blueprint, and that is correct. And that's the direction we have to take. That's the path we follow. Yeah. And it, we all get on great. And the, the front of house engineer, Trevor, that we use, he's just fantastic. He's a big Pink Floyd fan and he really knows it inside and out. And he's so easy to work with. And I think that's the thing about being a tribute band because your fans, fans first, we're not rock stars up on a stage. We're not famous. We're the music is famous. We're like an orchestra playing a, a soundtrack to the lighting show. So um, it does keep you grounded as, as well because we're not in the limelight. We're not getting photographs and in magazines and all that because of who we are. We're just playing that music. So it's a really good atmosphere and vibe. On, there's about 40 of us on the road and everyone's wow. just laid back and they're all just trying to make this the best it can be. Well, I guess um, just bringing it away from gear for a little bit, for, for those of you who haven't seen it, it, it as well, not only of is it just, you know, the best experience to listen to Pink Pink Floyd music live, um, it's also one of, it's, it's an incredible light show, <laughs> which is something that obviously I'm guessing has evolved considerably, at, you know, for the last three decades. Yeah, and we've got people that have been doing it for 20 years with us. So, again, they video the show and look at it and they're tweaking it and always trying to improve upon it. So yeah. we're I, just not... really lucky. We've got some great people. <laughs> for, yeah. for anyone who hasn't seen it, I won't spoil the um, a couple of the surprises that <laughs> have appeared every time um, when, I, when I've seen it. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, I would say hopefully when all of the uh, the world returns to normal and you guys are back out on the road because I think you were supposed to be on tour at some point this year. Absolutely. Well, we were that... in France when we were told we have to come back to the uh, UK um, due to the large gathering restrictions and bans they had. Um, fortunately, we got back because it was only days after that people were getting held up and quarantined and stuff. So... Um, we got everyone back safely. Unfortunately, no one caught anything. Um, but yeah, that was going to run for, you know, th two and a half, three months. Wow. Um, so we did 11 shows out of 101 and then came back and it was, uh, we're all dressed up and nowhere to go, <laughs> oh. which is a shame. But um, obviously the stuff that's going on in the world is awful it's terrible but and you know music is isn't a necessity um and i'm certain it'll the industry will pick up again when the important stuff of dealing with all this has been resolved yeah you know, people can and, yeah. enjoy themselves absolutely so i guess um I, I kind of wanted to to round this um chat off i mean we would I, I think we'd be here forever um if you tried to explain <laughs> the signal chain that's going on in some of the studio pictures I think there's that you a series me. in this yeah. absolutely um and i i said to you you need to um 
get in on the Facebook group. We'll post a couple of these pictures and then uh, we'll let people ask questions about right? just cable length. I, I just how many how many miles of cable must you be using? Um, so I, I kind of just wanted to go two questions really. What are your five favorite pedals that you're Ooh. kind of using right now? Five pedals to nail the Gilmore sound. And yeah, and then maybe five pedals that you have to have if you're gonna go down the, the Gilmore route. Okay. Um I'd say Put you on the spot there a little bit. <laughs> Colour sound power boost. I think that's a phenomenal pedal. Um there's various versions of that. Um are you using an original one? Because it's the one of the biggest pedals on the uh, on the the rig that I'm seeing right now. It is, yeah. That's it's not an original uh, '60s one, but I've spoken to uh, Mr. McCurry, um, who got all his old circuits out, and he's actually built us um, several to a specific circuit. Um, oh wow! Wow, which is it's a very clean. It's a lot cleaner than the ones that you can buy now. Uh, you get more headroom and it's it's more for tone rather than drive. Um, so I find it a little easier to get um, drive uh, out of multitude of pedals, but to get a really good clean boost um, signal, um, then uh, there's just something about those pedals. Um, they just have a, a character and a tone. The way they respond and everything, to you can really feel it in your fingers. Um, but yeah, that's and obviously David Gilmore used that uh, for many years. Yeah. Um, um, a MXR Dynacomp, a script logo. Um, I'd say that's very much a, a go-to compressor for a, a lot of the Gilmore stuff. Um, that was a staple of his board for quite some time as well, I think. Yes, rightly. Always remember seeing that was the for me, especially when I get started getting into playing guitar. That was the one. So, oh, you got to have an an MXR compressor. Um, rightly or wrongly, I don't know if that was what was used on another brick in the wall, but that's the one that always stands out because it's it's got that kind of feel to it. But um, whether he actually used it on that track or not, I don't know. I think he may have that in a um, a CP nine. I've been his CP nine. Right. Compressor limiter, I think one into the other. Um, I believe so. I'm probably wrong, but uh, <laughs> Bjorn asked We'll have Bjorn. to ask the internet on that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> big muffs. You've really got to have um, big muffs for, for David Gilmore sounds. Um, and I use I use the, uh, two of them. I use the, the Sovtech Civil War. Which is a bit more for the moderner stuff and oh, okay. for the earlier stuff. It's the electroharmonics, um, like the Pi, or there's the you know the three knob job in the big tin. Um, so yeah, fuzz. You've got to have a bit of fuzz um, and delays. You really can't play, um, you know, Pink Floor without delays. And again, it's like a Benson Ekerek is the uh, is yeah, the so you, go-to. I, I can see at the moment you've got a Strymon Volante yeah, on your sort of home board, uh, so I'm guessing that must have been a sort of um, an instant purchase when you saw that. You're like, oh, that's got to be as close, <laughs> close to a Benson as you're going to get. I actually um, I only bought that um, a couple of months ago. Oh, okay. And I'm absolutely blown away by it. It's, uh, 
not only does it sound fantastic and authentic, but when you put your guitar through it um, and then plug it into your amps, it talks to the amps beautifully. There's, it's just a match made in heaven. That The tone instantly improved in the whole rig just by running it through that. Mm-hmm. It's doing something clever with the impedance, but it just works with the amps I'm using. Um, so I was, I was really, really doubly happy with that. Um, but other than that, I've used the the Catlin Bread um, and also a, a PCM70, Lexicon PCM70, which is, um, that's a 70s effect, but has six different voices, so like six delays in one box. And David Gilmore used that in his, you know, his uh, momentary lapse and division bell racks um, to, for his time solo. It's got like a circular delay in it effect, which is very Vincent Eckerack-ish. Right. Um, so that's, was that five or was that six? Yeah, <laughs> around five. Um, so I guess for me, and just, just one other question on, on that, um, that thing, Pete Cornish um obviously um top of the boutique food chain <laughs> i think i think for some um a, a, a brand a, a, i would say i mean i've owned a lot of gear but probably nowhere close to, to what you've had but um never owned a pete cornish pedal um so is there a particular one that you you obviously you say you need quite a few of them for the gilmore sound but is there is there is there one to go for uh Again, they all do different things, but for a fuzz, I've got a P1 and a P2. Um, the P1, that's kind of what David used in the earlier, um, you know, dark side up to animals type thing. P2 came along at the moment lapse of reason. Um, it's a thicker in the mids, but I really like the, the, the anger and angst uh, <laughs> that a P1 gives. Um, and then... Pete does these pedals, uh, it was like an SS2, which is a soft sustain two, and it's it's a gorgeous way of getting a bit of grit and a bit of sort of sus- bit more sustain, obviously, <laughs> um, into the chain. But the, the thing about Pete's pedals is that when you when you move the knobs, they're just so accurate and precise. They're like a, a tool or a um, almost like a piece of test equipment or something they're just so accurate um and controlled and they've they've got their character of their own you might get other pedals which which are more um might have their own bit more of mojo or stuff kind of almost being out of control-ish whereas the the pete stuff is very refined but they're almost like tools like a swiss army knife set of tools and if you if you're trying to shape a sound you you end up thinking oh i need to use one of those and one of those and this and that because they're like the ingredients of of the sound almost like baking a cake or something yeah they all have their own purpose but they're also just precise it's it's, you, you need to own them and use them i think to to really understand that because yeah um they are they diff- they just behave differently to any other pedals. And uh, um, I guess, lastly, is there anything you think you're missing? <laughs> do you ever, do you, have, you, have you ever oh. done the last tour and gone? I just really need to get one of those. 
all the time. <laughs> and uh, I'm always trying to convince my wife that I need to buy more gear <laughs> as well. But, um, it's part it, of the job, at least. It, 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 it is. You, you're right. And it's tax deductible, of course. Yeah, you can. But, uh, but no, it's there's always, um, you know, you're always questing for something. And there's, there's always something new that comes out. Or you see on eBay and you see that pedal and you think, oh, and that's, you know, love to get it. But when do you stop? You know, it's, uh, I've got boxes of pedals that I've bought for trial and error. And again, and again, you try it and try it. And you think, you know what? The one I was already using just sounds right. Uh, you know, it I just think, works. I, I think we've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst. You, you, you um, yeah. You, you cycle through your whole your whole rig. You build. I'm in fact, I'm in the process of building another pedal board now. And then you just <laughs> you get to the end of it and go, oh, I was probably happier with it the first time round. Well, it is called gear acquisition syndrome for a reason, and it is something we all suffer from. And in fact, you know, I guess it's the main reason behind this podcast <laughs> <laughs> as well. But um, but yes, I think we you know we we are we're that's about all the time we've got for this week's episode of the Friday special. Um, so it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the podcast, Steve. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. It's nice yeah, to talk it, to people. Been... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's it. Yeah, and, we are... and, and about pedals as well, which is, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I th- like I said, I think most other tribute bands, you probably couldn't get away with talking about gear as much as you can Pink Floyd. Yeah. Um, yeah, you definitely chose one. probably the most expensive band to, to be a big band for, that's, uh, that's for sure. We often do think that. Why didn't you do ACDC? You know, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, at least you don't have to wear a schoolboy outfit every day, that's every true. evening. No, that's really fair enough. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, thanks very much for coming on, Steve. It's been it's been great to talk to you. It's been a really eye-opening and really interesting, um, and for our listeners as well, so thank you very much indeed. You can, of course, catch more Guitar Nerds over on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Guitar Nerds, or you can join us on any of the major social platforms with at Guitar Nerds. And we'll be back next week with our regular episode on Wednesday and another Friday special, surprisingly, on Friday. We'll catch you then for more of this Guitar Nerdery. Farewell. Cheers.